Have you ever wanted to know how a famous preacher got their roots and found their calling? Today's guest, Reverend Dr. William Curtis, shares his story after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. Preaching is one of those things that can often be hit or miss. Depends on the tradition you're from or even the service you're attending. At times, a sermon can be captivating, moving, even life-changing. Other times, you have to fight to stay awake after 10 minutes into a message. Powerful preaching is something this week's guest specializes in. We hosted a recent event at Upper House called Thinking Theologically About These Times, and we took advantage of having the guest speaker, Reverend Dr. William Curtis, in-house to hear his story. So, who is Dr. Curtis? He's a native of Baltimore, and impressively, he accepted the call to ministry at the age of 17. He served as the senior pastor at Shiloh Baptist Church in York, Pennsylvania, and since 1997, he served as the senior pastor at Mount Ararat Baptist Church in Pittsburgh. Mount Ararat is a large urban ministry that ministers to more than 10,000 members of the community. Dr. Curtis holds degrees from Morgan State University and Howard University School of Divinity, and has a doctor of ministry from United Theological Seminary, where he's also been an instructor. Aside from being a pastor, he's also the co-owner of The Church Online, a technology and full-service marketing firm that provides services all over the world. For this episode, we were privileged to have a guest interviewer that you'll hear first in the interview, pastor of Madison's own Mount Zion Baptist Church, Dr. Marcus Allen. Dr. Allen also serves on Upper House's local advisory council, and he's one of our favorite partners in the city of Madison. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Here is Marcus Allen and William Curtis. All right, man. Uh, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, appreciate you doing this. Um, we got got you doing a lot today, and I appreciate you coming. Um, so they're gonna do all the introductions and stuff okay. uh, of your bio and all that. So we just jump right in it. Um, I know you love golf. Let's just start right there. I know you love golf. Uh, so how do you experience God on the golf course? And uh, what are some spiritual metaphors that uh, you've encountered by playing golf? So I think love is probably like too light a word. I'll go <laughs> ahead and admit it's an addiction. It's been like a probably a 25, 30 year addiction. Mm. Um, but I, so people think that I'm being comedic when I say it's devotional. Right. And how you structure your life. I think everything is spiritual. I teach Ararat that there is no dichotomy between natural and spiritual, I just think we're all spiritual, mm -hmm. right? And that everything we encounter, every conversation, every place we're at geographically can be spiritual. right? And I do authentically believe that. So for me, I structure my day to do all of my thinking, pastoral and intellectual work as early as possible. And then the golf course gives me two things. One, it's my personal time mm -hmm. where I'm not giving myself always to the traditional trappings of ministry. Right. And then it's my um, kind of my solitary time that even if I'm playing with other guys, they understand who I am. So when I go into that quiet place where I'm doing kind of sermon modality, mm -hmm. thinking about a Bible study, praying for families or praying about my own issues, it becomes devotional. And I mean, what better place you're out in the middle of nature right if you're on a really nice golf course it's plush you got expansive space if you're relatively good at the game you're not grinding the game as much as you're enjoying the day right you're enjoying the company and then it has a ministry aspect so at the golf course that i play at most regularly I have subtle evangelistic ways of introducing christ to people who are forced to ride with me for four and a half hours, mm -hmm. right? Not invasive, right? don't wanna mess up anybody's game, and I wanna have fun, and I don't always wanna talk theology, Bible, and God knows I don't always wanna do counseling, <laughs> but all those things kinda somehow get integrated. 
but it gives me a chance to also be evangelistic. And there have been several guys who, in the course of being transparent about their own issues, I've had a chance to introduce them to a spiritual way to think about it. Mm. And that ultimately there have been some who have said, you know, I really want to know Jesus. Right. Right. And many who've joined church. Wow. So it becomes evangelistic. So for me, it's devotional and it's evangelistic. Yeah, you know, they say most business deals are made on the golf course. But, oh, absolutely. But you, you're changing to the evangelistic right. life deals. That's, right. that's what's up. I, so I know for me, I'm a grinder. You no, know, I want to go get it. You know, we talked about yesterday, mission first. How you be intentional about getting on the golf course, you know, because how you just make sure that I'm going to take this time. That's something I, I struggle with because I'm always going, trying to do the work of the church or right. different ministry work and stuff. So I heard Gardner Taylor say when I was a doctoral student, he was a guest speaker for one of our convocations. And on that particular day, I happened to be on to do either the prayer or the scripture. So we were seated next to each other and they were going to start a little late. He and I kind of knew each other. I knew him from preaching for my home church and then the whole Hampton interweaving. And so we just struck up a conversation and he said something that was for him ancillary and in passing. But for me, it was almost revelatory. He said, young man, the only thing you will ever own is your time. Mm. So you have to manage and steward your time because everything else God is going to demand that you give to others. Wow. Your voice, your intellect, mm. your ministry. The only thing you're going to own is your time. So make sure that you honor your time. Well, I, you know, and again, it was like peripheral to something else he was trying to say. Right. But I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, so I've sought to steward that that I can structure my day the way that I want to. And like specifically in pandemic times, now that we are helping churches to become accustomed to virtual and technological and schedules have changed and all that, I've been even more intentional about how I structure my time because I was able to do a whole lot from home. Right. And I could structure meetings and counseling and all those kind of things around evening hours, or late morning hours to make sure that midday between that 11 o'clock and that three thirty four o'clock hour that I had that to be able to go play golf. Wow. So it's devotional. It's um, restorative, mm -hmm. I think would be a contemplative word to use. It's restorative for me. It gives me the one place where I am not responsible for anything other than being with me right. and being with God for that time. That's what's up. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I definitely, you know, looking for how to be intentional mm -hmm. in that way because like i said I just try to go go so hard um yeah i think when i hear people talk about they don't have time for mm -hmm. the gym or they don't have time for themselves right. i think that's a confession that it, to me it's and i don't mean this in a um in a judgment kind of way but it's a confession of poor stewardship mm -hmm. Because I think God gives us time to make sure we're healthy right and to make sure that we are uncluttered and in that regard, he wants us to steward our time to make sure that we're offering him the best vessel, the best mm -hmm. temple in biblical language that we can. Right. So I use uh, I, I stopped doing CrossFit. I used to do CrossFit a lot. So there was like that one hour a day. I don't have to worry about nothing. Right. But completing this exercise. <laughs> yeah. That for one hour, I don't have to worry about nobody else. No counseling. No and it's so prep. critically yeah. important. Yeah. You know, you got you got to do it, particularly as the years stretch out. Because you can get to a place, and I've been here, you can get to a place where you resent your church for pulling on you mm -hmm. all the time. I jokingly introduce the culture of church to people who don't know it well by saying, here's how I describe my job. 99.9% .9 of the time when my phone rings, it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. In 37 years, 38 years of combined ministry, I cannot remember on one hand the number of people who have called and said, Pastor, I was just having such a great day. And I just <laughs> thought maybe I should just call the pastor and tell him, you know, right. Every call is a crisis of some degree. Now, imagine the the compilation of years of all that pulling right. from you. Man, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't think that you deserve which may be the, the critical phrase. If you don't think you deserve to steward your own health, then I think that's poor stewardship. Wow. So July, you celebrating 25 years of passionate at your current church. Right. And the question I ask most pastor who has this longevity, 
what how did you make it this far or yeah. <laughs> what 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 could you tell other pastors to how to to operate that's a great question um i i think very early on all of us are by default attempting to mimic the ministries we are a product of it goes back to what susan thistlewaite says in her theologies of the underside that you cannot escape your context mm. that you, you you're best introducing yourself based on context i am william curtis son of william and maureen african-american male from baltimore pastoring a predominantly african-american church husband father of one mm. daughter those everything i just said impacts everything I proclaim because context is everything, right? So I am the product of a church that was pastored by now Bishop Walter Thomas, where discipleship was critical and one's devotional life to God was the platform upon which everything else in ministry stands. So for him, it wasn't about being a good preacher, a good clergy person, or a good pastor. It was about being the best Christian you could be. Mm -hmm. And I can still see images of him with his three-leaf devotional journal sitting at his desk before workday starts, having his devotions, writing his journal and his prayers. Mm -hmm. I can still remember the first gift when I went on staff at that church was that same three-ring devotional binder that for years became my method of devotions. So for me, the success of pastoral ministry, if it is deemed success, right. because I think you can't really count until you get to the end, and I'll come back to that. But I think if there is some modicum of success, it is based on the devotional life you have with Jesus Christ. For me, preaching is the outpouring of one's intimate and devotional life with Christ. That if you only engage the Bible for homiletical presentation mm -hmm. and preparation, you're, you're naive to say the least that it is the outpouring or what we learn in seminary, that preaching is not exegesis, it's the fruit of exegesis. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to let that text filter through your own life. And as it filters through your life and you spend time with it, out of it comes sermonic truths, right? right. So I think that's been part of success. Um, if I was to do a short list, it would be um, make people count. Uh, see mm -hmm. church as the development and the maturation and the equipping of saints, not just for loyalty, active participation and busyness within the institutional walls, but how faithful they can be to the kingdom of God and representing the kingdom in the marketplace. Right. So one of the things the pandemic taught me was our definitions of church have probably been, been expanded far beyond what the Bible intended. Mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, the church is not the geographical gathering. The church is the community right. connectivity and then the ability to go out and incarnate that in the marketplace. So for me, success in ministry has been those things. And then over the years to remember that relationships count, that at the end of the day, you are a compilation of the relationships you develop and you steward it. And I, I use that for my engagement with preachers and I use that for my engagement with the congregation that I am measured at the end of this. I will not be measured by the square footage. Mm -hmm. I will not be measured by what I've done programmatically. Right. I'll not be measured by platforms I've been privileged to stand on. I'll be measured by how I made people see themselves through the lenses of Christ. Wow. And for me, that's success in ministry. That's good. So uh, in your childhood, what um, what influenced the formation of your faith and your view of God? So this is um, this is kind of emotional data for me. OK, so I met an African-American music teacher in middle school named John Leon Lewis, who originally I was a part of a music class that was part of the curriculum of the school day. And I was I always had a deep voice. Like I developed this deep voice very early in life. And he needed a bass to sing in a special after school choir, at which time he did not tell me it was a gospel choir. Mm. But he needed a bass voice. Could you stay after school singing this choir that I'm putting together? And I did. Okay. And I can tell you that, you know, originally singing the lyrics 
didn't pay any attention to it. But then my mother couldn't keep picking me up after school every Tuesday or Wednesday it was. She couldn't keep coming at that time, but he volunteered to drop me off. Okay. And he had one of those old wood panel station wagons. <laughs> so yes, he sir. would pile some of us in there who needed ride home, mm-hmm. rides home. Well, I lived the furthest away. So I'd have to stay in the back of that station wagon. And back then the fun was being able to stay in the back hatch. Like the gotcha. girls would sit right. in the seats and the guys would mm-hmm. crowd in the hatch. Probably illegal these days. Right. I probably shouldn't be saying <laughs> this. <laughs> but so I'd be the last drop off. Well, one day after we dropped everybody off, Aileen, Tina, Sandy, Kyra, Tony Watson, Franklin Crockett. I can still remember the names. How? Because uh, we all, I mean, we did this like every single wow. week. We stopped by this bookstore, Peter and John bookstore on Liberty Road in Baltimore. He needed to pick up some material for maybe somebody at church or whatever. I can't remember that. And then he said, do you have a Bible? I said, no, I don't. So he bought me a little pocket New mm-hmm. Testament. And then Marcus, he said to me when he got back in the car, he said, I'm gonna make a bet with you. Every scripture you memorize, I'll give you a quarter. Wow. And that was my beginning of entrepreneurship. <laughs> so I was like, okay, good business deal to me. I would memorize scripture, get his money, buy noun laters, right? break the pack, divide the noun laters up and sell them individually in middle school, make a profit. So I was making money selling candy, wow. right? Not realizing that I was also internalizing scripture and it was impacting me and I didn't even know it. Wow. So one day we're on the way home. He asked me, had I been reading that week? I told him I quoted my memory verse and it happened to have been that day, John 316. Mm. And he said, do you understand what you read? I was like, no. And in my mind, I'm like, pay me my money. Right. (laughs) That's all that's important. But we sat in that station wagon and he introduced me to Christ. Mm. I went from singing bass in a gospel choir with lyrics I did not understand to, I think, three, maybe three more years of that. And moving from that to uh, engaging my girlfriend in a relationship who was a part of my what became my home church. Mm-hmm. Her mother didn't play. So she was like, if you're going to date my daughter, you got to go to church on Sunday. I didn't have a ride. So I would go to church with them. Mm-hmm. And that was also a subtle way to be able to go over and eat at the house afterwards, spend more time with my girlfriend. Right. right. Well, all of this was just growing and developing me because then I fell in love with the church that I had engaged trying to date her ended up entering into their young adult discipleship program. David Major, who was my discipleship leader, took me and a couple of other guys, and all three of us out of that group acknowledged a call to ministry. Wow. We preached, and the privilege for me was I did that at 15, and then Bishop Thomas brought me on staff at 17. He had anonymous angel investors to help pay for my undergrad, and seminary degree. Wow. And then at 22, I was called to my first church in York. And I was at that point a middler at Howard University Divinity School. So I finished seminary there, went straight into the doctoral program at United and the rest is as they say history. So it was John Leon Lewis that introduced me to Christ. And then walking across the campus of Morgan State between freshman and sophomore year, I acknowledge my call to ministry mm. and then Pastor Thomas, then Pastor Thomas um, thought I was a little too young. So he made me wait between ages 16 and 17. You could just uh, just begin. I you know in the book of Esther, you never mentioned God's name, mm-hmm. but you see the invisible providential hand of God all throughout the text. Absolutely. And just like your life, man, it's just like God just strategically place the right people in your path mm-hmm. uh to get to you get you to where where you are today right so how was it you know i was i started preaching when i was 13 mm-hmm. well, i won't hear from you how was it being a, what they called a boy preacher it was rough okay. it was rough um it was rough in the sense of you you want to integrate and the things that people in the neighborhood or in school or on your sports team, I was a basketball player, so right. on your sports team, you want to do what they do. Right. And what is interesting is they prevented me from voluntarily doing some things because they had respect. I won't say they had more respect for my ministry that was budding than I did, but they had enough respect for my ministry to not allow me to make 
toxic or para, potentially perilous decisions, mm-hmm. right? So if I want to go to the party, it would be like, Bill, you know you can't go to this party. <laughs> you can't ride with us. You know, if I wanted on the basketball court to to test something that they were testing, mm-hmm. they would, no, you can't do this, you know? And then one of them, uh, James Woods, I don't know how I remember these names now, but James Woods said to me one day on the basketball court, right outside of Grove Park Elementary School, he said, Bill, one of us got to get out of here. Mm. And so it was then this this community effort to make sure that if I was going to do this, that I was going to represent not just the kingdom, I was going to represent this community that was so tight knit. And it was a very tight knit inner city urban community in Baltimore. So they wanted to make sure that I escaped without any scars or any major scars. And I still respect that to this day. That's what's up. Uh, that's that's what's up for real. So, preaching. What's your level of love for preaching? Um, probably as addicted to it as I am to golf. Because I think ninety percent of what you do with your congregation is the engagement you have with them for whatever that time span is that you get their undivided attention at the moment of your preachment. Right. And it's the it's also the biggest gathering of your congregation Mm -hmm. that you're going to have in the course of every seven days. Right. Right. So I think you have to take it extremely serious. I describe it as an athlete does a season. I treat preaching and my homiletical year just like an athlete does. I believe you need to be conditioned for it. Mm-hmm. I believe you need to practice it. And if Kobe Bryant said he took a thousand free throw shots almost every day of his life, I want to make sure that I can brag that I give an inordinate amount of time to sermonic development okay. and feeding my spirit for what would be beneficial to sermonic presentation. So I, um, I love the craft. And I think that people who move from a modicum of success in their homiletical presentation to becoming what we would call, quote unquote, great preachers or notable pulpiteers, Mm -hmm. I think they are fans of preaching. They don't just do it. I think they become fans of preaching. So I not only love to preach, but I love to hear Mm -hmm. preaching. I love to talk about preaching. And I'm talking about all styles um, genres, races, ethnicities. Mm-hmm. I just love the craft and I love everything from the pulpit mannerisms to the, the dispensing of the word itself. And I appreciate that God has given us such a diversity of gift. Right. So you mature to a place where what you count as great preaching impactful and powerful preaching doesn't have to be narrowly defined in the modality perhaps that you've been exposed to or the modality that has been dominant in your culture or your context or Mm -hmm. your seminary training as you grow and mature and age i think you learn to appreciate the to borrow john guns's words you appreciate the genius of god Mm -hmm. that god can communicate his word through so distinctive and diverse vessels that you almost just learn to appreciate whoever is up, whatever their skill level, whatever their level of education. You just appreciate that God is so powerful that he can change people's lives through a human voice. And that to me is just fascinating that people gather in Mount Ararat and have done so for 25 years to essentially hear the same story from the same vessel mm-hmm. and every week find something that they can hang their lives on to help them survive the tumultuous terrain of human experience. You know, sometimes I think, how long would these people listen to me? Uh, I do the same thing. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I'm, get, I'm glad I'm not in the, I'm not by myself. Cause I'm like, would they really, Listen, how long will they listen to these words that's coming but from But doesn't you? it fascinate you that you can read a text this year mm-hmm. that you know you preached last year and then a different nugget right. will shine for you? Or H. Grady Davis says that the twisting of that diamond will reveal a different facet of mm-hmm. its brilliance, right? And it's like it amazes me that Mother's Day, Father's Day, mm-hmm. um, uh, watch night, Christmas, Christmas mm-hmm. Easter, Easter, you know, these high holy, these high mark, watermark uh, days that 
you essentially know you're obligated to preach these texts. That way, that's how I feel. You're right. obligated to be responsible mm-hmm. with the liturgical calendar. And to, to look at that same text and have preached it 25 <laughs> times, you know, I mean, 25 times right. you're preaching the same text, Pentecost, mm-hmm. right? And each time to surrender to the Holy Spirit, showing you a different dimension of it, that to me is utterly fascinating. And it makes me, um, it helps me to, when I hear preachers say, I've taken this church as far as I can go, mm-hmm. or I'm bored in ministry, or I'm bored with my preaching. I challenge those things because I'm like, there is no way you can tell me that you have gotten bored with how the Holy Spirit is revealing to you the subtle dimensions of God's word. Are you spending enough time in it? Mm -hmm. Do you love it enough to look for something different? And do you love the craft enough to accept the challenge of standing in front of the empty tomb again? Mm -hmm. For me, the 38th time combined and find something new to come out of it. That to me is just fascinating. That's what's up. All right. So go go through your process uh, of your sermon prep, how you prepare your sermons and how to each week and okay. um, and like planning, how you plan out your sermons. Well, as you know, I have to set context because I have a Saturday night service. Mm-hmm. So because of that, my week is constricted. Right. And then if you're traveling, you know, pre-pandemic and starting to get back to it, if you're traveling, you're cutting out all the time where you're in an airport up in the air and standing in another pulpit. So I identify texts on Sunday night. I spend my ruminating time with it on the golf course mm-hmm. on Monday. Monday night, I am writing my hard outline. And my hard outline is made up of my title, my proposition mm-hmm. statement, and then I'm a person who identifies tension. So I'm trying to figure out what tension I'm exposing in this next sermon. And the reason I do that is because I think everybody who sits in the pew is wrestling with some form of tension. Right. And I see the Bible as a book of tension. God steps out of nothing into nothing mm-hmm. and calls everything into being and then breathes into man the breath of life. And then there's this tension between man and the serpent and good and evil on and on and on. So I'm looking for the tension. And then I don't do points. I do moves because I think they should all be integrated Mm -hmm. and there should be some symmetry. So I am um, like Dr. Taylor, Gunnar Taylor. I believe there's one main idea and then I'm pulling out of its subtleties to that one main idea I don't I, I have no um, criticism of people who have three distinct moves. Right. And I certainly have no criticism of an expository preacher who believes it's verse by verse. But my predisposition is towards having one main idea and then whatever tributaries come from that. So I write that hard outline. The only thing that will not include in the outline phase of it are illustrations, mm-hmm. metaphors and images. And then on Tuesday morning, I'm up. 4.30, I write the complete first draft, including now having searched for images and illustrations, windows and metaphors, which to me are support. They cannot be main. Right. They are only to better illuminate the text Got it. and should never dominate it. And, it. and for me, the measurement of that is if I overhear members talking about my illustration more than the text or the main um, the main point that I was trying to get across in the totality of the sermon, I know that I spend too much time or I drill too down on the illustration. Right. Right. So Tuesday afternoon, that main, that first draft is done because it has to go to media and slides are developed from that. Mm-hmm. The music department gets it so that they can figure out how to connect the appropriate music for the following weekend right. and the like. And then Thursday, our entire team is done. And now we are Thursday night with the praise team or the choir rehearsing. And then the fine arts ministry is also making sure that all the wall graphics and scriptures and everything has congruence to it. Mm-hmm. And then Friday for me is a final edit. Saturday morning is a read, sit it down. Saturday night I'm up to preach. And so and you're a full manuscript preacher. I believe <laughs> as H. Beecher Hicks said, all great English speaking preachers were manuscript preachers. Mm. Now, now in my thirties and forties, 
I said that timidly because I have high respect for several non-manuscript preachers that impressed me so much that I wanted to be like them. Mm -hmm. And I also explained to people, my loyalty to the manuscript is not because I cannot preach non-manuscript. It's because I will be so ungodly long Mm. emptying my mind if I don't have the discipline of the script in front of me. So for me, the manuscript protects the main idea Mm -hmm. from me being tempted to add all the things that are part of my reservoir into a sermon simply because I have it in me as opposed to realizing I got next week coming. I don't have to say everything today, right? My wife taught me that. (laughs) Yeah. And then a part B of that is and you you I know you appreciate this the part B of that is when you're asked to preach and this sermon is required again to have it in a full manuscript cuts mm-hmm. down on a lot of work right right yes, as opposed to extemporaneity or a partial outline when now this next time there are things that were salient to you because of who you were and where you were in the Mm -hmm. context in which that sermon was born, the convictions out of which that sermon was created, that you don't have that same emotionality. You're not living in that same space, right? right? Or your lens is a little different now. Now you don't have, you you think the sermon may come out the same, but it doesn't. So the manuscript protects that. So uh, COVID happened, March, 2020. Um, We, all the churches empty. Some people pass it preaching from living rooms, kitchens, um, or for us, we just stay going to church every Sunday and we just preach to a camera. How how was that? So I got off of a plane from preaching revival for Jerry Carter in Morristown, New Jersey. I stood in my pulpit that Saturday and Sunday and had no idea that that would be the last time I would see them for 18 months. Mm. And I can tell you that the front part of that week when the decision had to be made that we would not meet as a congregation the next week, I was full of anxiety about Mm -hmm. whether ministry was over. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about Mount Ararat. I literally sat in my office at home wondering, is this the end for church as we knew it? I knew I had to kick in the gear for the next week for going in and preaching in front of the camera and what we need to do technologically. I was blessed because I'm a co-owner of a, a technology company. So I wasn't worried about were we capable of streaming and getting online and moving people towards it. But I was scared. What would that mean for people I had poured into for 20, 23 years at the time? Mm-hmm. Would, would they remain faithful to their stewardship? Right. I don't have, quote unquote, a contract. I make my living on the generosity of people's faithfulness to honor God with their tithes. Mm -hmm. My daughter's, you know, in graduate school. Right. I have a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Right. What does this what did this mean? My wife has given up her life to follow my ministry. And because we moved from all of our family support when maternity leave was over, she stayed home and never went back to work. Mm-hmm. So it was all on me. And I was sitting there, I don't know if I panicked, but I was full of anxiety. Right. And then I kicked into survival gear. And after that first week of streaming, watching those numbers and realizing that people were anchoring in to their spiritual connectivity because they were full of anxiety too. Right. Then it went from William Curtis, forget about yourself. Your responsibility is to help people remain connected to hope. And then I went into 18 months of this is crisis. And if ever people need a pastor, they need a pastor now. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you a funny story. I started a nightly prayer call. And the second night of that prayer call every day, Monday through Friday, Mm -hmm. I made the statement, as long as we're in this pandemic, seven o'clock and seven thirty, I'm going to be on this line every night with a devotional and a prayer. 
I had no idea. How long? You know, I thought a month, two right. months. When we got to like six months, I'm like, God, <laughs> can I renege on this covenant I made? But people, you know, it was 600, mm. 1,000, 1,300, add another uh, half hour to the end of the night because the phone line couldn't handle anymore. And then when I, the first year, I said, I'm going to take a week off of vacation and I'll be back on the number of people who were emailing, texting, do you promise you'll be back? Wow. Because think about it for a moment. For people who were isolated in their homes, they were only hearing one voice every day. Mm -hmm. And there were people afterwards who said, the only thing that kept me going was that I knew at seven o'clock I was going to hear my pastor's voice. Wow. That turned into two devotionals that I wrote as a result of that, you know, so on and on and on. So what started out as severe anxiety turned into, for me, what better time to pastor mm. than in the middle of a global crisis? I could not. I, I probably shouldn't say because it may sound like judgment, but maybe it is and, and, and maybe it needs to be said. I couldn't understand talking to some people who saw that as sabbatical time. Right. Uh, I'm a broadcast old sermons or, you know, I'm just going to let associates preach. I'm not I'm not you know, I don't know whether I'm being I'm being critical of it. OK. <laughs> Because I, don't, I just couldn't understand what better time to pastor and right. shepherd than when the sheep are in jeopardy, mm -hmm. right? And I think I garnered a lot more pastoral respect. I've always had homiletical respect for my congregation. But I had people, Marcus, who actually said to me, I knew you loved us, but when COVID hit, you proved to us that you loved wow. us. You sacrificed for us mm -hmm. and we will never forget that mm. yeah and i appreciated those comments because i did right i woke up every day and wrote a full meditation wrote out my prayers to make them thematic right. you know in the beginning it was um cathartic and therapeutic and then as we were starting to understand how to control it with the vaccines then it became imaginative of the future mm -hmm. and then in between there was what they call that liminal space that teaching people we don't have answers, but we know a God who does. So what we're going to do is we're going to learn to steward mystery because mm. everybody wants to steward facts, right? right? We're going to learn to steward mystery to stand in the Valley of dry bones and know that it's okay to say to God, I don't know, but thou knowest, mm -hmm. you know, and be okay with that. Right. Yeah. That's what's up. So we, we're on this podcast with the Upper House and um, their listeners, I'm pretty sure, are predominantly Caucasian mm -hmm. listeners, but they're Christians. And they off, don't often hear African-American preaching. Um, so how can we honor African-American preaching? Uh, because no matter what, our preaching is different right. uh, from our Caucasian brothers. So how can we really honor it? in a real sense uh, for as far as um, this mixed community we have here in Madison. Okay, so I think that we have to be honest to own that African-American preaching is always gonna have some motif of liberation. Mm -hmm. We have a predisposition towards resonating with text that lend towards some commonality with our struggle in this country. Right. Right. So Moses becomes very important for us. Mm -hmm. And the Exodus becomes a lens out of which we've developed our hope. Um, because we were, I mean, it's a historical fact. We were enslaved in this country mm -hmm. and emancipation and our introduction to the African American church is in the immediate aftermath of emancipation where the lexicon of our homiletic was to help people own liberation right and to make some sense out of struggle so we can't deny that and we bring some passion to it because of our african rootage mm -hmm. right so we're very celebratory as a people 
and we're very passionate and emotive as a people and we're very expressive as a people. So that just goes with African-American preaching. Right. And because that lens is predisposed towards liberation or the liberation motif, we tend to always look for themes like deliverance. And I don't mean that in the charismatic sense. Mm -hmm. I mean that in the internal spiritual sense. And we're eschatological. Our homiletic has always been towards the future mm -hmm. because we are the products of people who taught their kids tomorrow's going to be a better day. Right. Man, that's good. We're, we're coming out of this. That's you know. Good. So we have this eschatological bend towards our preaching um, that has become generational mm -hmm. in a pastoral sense. None of us have been able to escape that. And I said earlier, we're all products of our context. So even at age 55 and being born to parents who were stewarding their parentage in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement, I am not without having been severely discriminated against. And I can still remember driving, having to drive two hours to a beach when there was a beach 40 minutes away from home mm. because my father could not take us to the beach closer to home because we weren't allowed to be on that beach. Right. And I can still remember sitting in the back seat, listening to him trying to paint that in positive tones because he didn't want to necessarily say we're not allowed. Right. And I can still remember him saying to me when he's mistreated in stores, restaurants, I can still remember him saying to me, I'm doing this so that you can have a better life. Wow. Right. So that that's just the composition mm -hmm. of our preachment. Um, and then we get the beauty of adding to it the privilege of theological education. Right. And when you combine the two of those, I, I don't think that you can have a more powerful homiletical presentation than to have a responsible African-American preacher, because I think they give you a blend of the totality of what um, what powerful preaching sounds like. Right. Yeah. That's what's up. So what would you say to a, a young preacher trying to find his or her voice? Start out copying the right cat. <laughs> right. Because we all start out that way. It's nothing right. new under the sun. Right. So just make sure you're copying the right cat and then have integrity with what God does to purge the other voice out of you and to allow your own voice to emerge. And then I'll tell you a brief story that I think better explains it. When I was 26, 27, I was partnered with Dr. Carolyn Knight and we were doing a citywide revival in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm. We get back into the car to be transported back to the hotel. And I asked her as any young preacher would, one of their icons, what did they, what did she think of my sermon? And her comment to me was, it was so good for 26. And then she said, just make sure you don't sound 26 when you're 46. Mm. And I'll never forget those words, wow. right? So my advice to a young preacher is be a young preacher. Mm. Don't, don't attempt to sound like, have the depth of a person who's been at it for 30, 40 years own where you are in this stage of life and perfect your craft Right, and be okay. If illustrations and images are, if they sound like 26, right? Mm -hmm. Because they won't sound like that always. Right. And then I would say to them, develop an absorption, an eye and an ear for sermonic angles, illustrations everywhere. Uh, learn how to make it so innate to you that everything is for sermon development. Mm -hmm. I preached in uh, Waco, Texas for Dr. Joe Gregory at Truett. And when I got off the plane going down the baggage claim, I passed him by. He almost didn't even see me. He was sitting at the table reading the pulpit commentary on Jonah, mm. waiting for me to get off the plane. So as we're walking out of the airport, we're approaching his car and his driver's side door is wide open and the car is running. And I say, Dr. Gregory, your door is open, the car is running. And here's what he said to me. Brother Curtis, 
Man, I got out of this car thinking about Jonah and the belly of that fish. Oh, that must have been a terrible place to be. And I must have walked in that airport totally forgetting that I left that car running and I totally forgot to close that door. But you know, life is like that sometimes. <laughs> sometimes we leave doors open that should be closed. And how many times have we left the engine running when we should have cut it off? Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, Doc, are you serious? <laughs> I mean, you're really going to make an illustration out of this. You know what I mean? But but that's because he's always, always yeah. predisposed to sermonic development. So my best advice to a young preacher is to be that way, to nurture relationships, to nurture relationships and to not make preaching a business venture, mm. make it a love affair with Jesus. Right. And he will ensure that you never do anything but succeed. Right. So moving on, let's uh, look at some theological education questions. And, okay. uh, um, no, my pastor growing up, uh, he went to school, um, but I really never knew of seminary to, I went to, Tabernacle Baptist Church in Petersburg, Virginia. And I was just standing outside one night late. My pastor said, you been to seminary? I was like, no, sir. We're going to see the dean tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was just like that. Um, so what is your perspective on the state of theolo theological um, education today? Um, I think it is in transition. And I think it's trying to figure out how to prepare the preacher for the context in which we're in mm -hmm. because while there is the need for theological training, uh, visitation of Christian history, preaching, I think seminaries are wrestling with, as they should, training preachers to deal with mental health issues, right? how to deal with the onslaught of technology. Mm-hmm. And I'll make a what may be a scary statement to listeners how to pastor in a culture when the church is not in first position. Because we are the most unchristian we've ever been mm -hmm. as a nation, and we are managing spiritual pluralism like we've never seen before. So what happens when the church is not the authority? When there's not a default right. to the church as an authority? Um and how the modality of ministry is going to be so drastically different because when you're in first position and people default to you as an institutional authority, they give you some leverage. When you're not in first position, they treat you with a hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm -hmm. And we've not seen that before. Right. So I think theological education has to deal with that. I think the seminary has to deal with the plethora of females who are engaging ministry and how few males are engaging ministry mm -hmm. and what the pulpit is going to look like, what it's starting to look like now. Wow. Because we're seeing uh, many pulpits have to wrestle with the issue of not having credible candidates on the male side and an abundance of credible candidates on the female side, but wrestling with the theological issue of women in ministry. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so they got to wrestle with that. And then I think the final component of that is because of the limited number of people who are entering ministry across all races, where are our professors going to come from mm. and who's going to be there to train the succeeding generations of clergy persons who are trying to make sure that their tools are refined for ministry. So, so what, what are you, yeah, you think you already answered like, most critical need to be training pastors and stuff. So as you look at the church today, um, how do you see God's hand at work um, on the church in this season? So it's very interesting that you were asked that. I was thinking about that in preparation for something else I have to do today. <laughs> um, I really do believe that we are having to face the reality that the successes we saw in church growth in the 90s and the early 2000s have birthed us into a season 
where we have to learn how to be grateful with remnants. Mm. Mega church reality as we knew it, that season has ended. I'm not saying it can't come back because there's an Azusa Street always around the corner. Mm -hmm. But the mega church growth that we saw and all the sprawling buildings and sizable acreages that we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s, that has segued into a season. COVID has certainly impacted that as well. Where now we have to manage and steward church in a season where if you're not grateful for remnants and learning how to manage who is in your context, knowing that it may not be bustling numbers like right. it was before, I think you won't be you, you won't be you won't find ministry gratifying. There is statistical data that says moving forward, clergy will probably have to revisit the idea of being bivocational. Mm -hmm. That has not been something that was a consideration until these recent years because it was it was it was a to use business terms it was a growing business right it's not like that anymore so bivocationality is a reality that has to be considered the number of preachers who are quitting ministry because of mental stress mm -hmm. and duress and, and those kind of things these are realities that we have to deal with um so i think church has to move from this naive feeling like it's a place of that it has a place of authority in the culture to becoming apologetic again to breaking down its programming its pedagogy and its proclamation back down to its simplest forms it can no longer make assumptions that it is speaking to people who understand the bible or who have any understanding of who God is right. and we have to make the assumption that every person we're talking to we are talking to as a person who has never heard anything from the Bible mm -hmm. before um, but I am more hopeful than I have ever been I am having more fun than I've ever had and I am more excited about church than I've ever been because I do honestly believe that like the Apostle Paul, what God is doing is to keep us from becoming conceited. There was given to us a <laughs> thorn in the flesh, yes, a buffeter of Satan, so that we can discover that it's his grace that makes us sufficient. And um, I, 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 I want to believe, and I say it humorously, but I want to believe that what COVID did was got a lot of preachers praying again. Mm. Got a lot of preachers reading again. Got a lot of preachers taking ministry, um, treating ministry in a different respect again. And that excites me. So so you've been passionate 38 years? 38 total. How do you make those shifts, right? Because, uh, you know, oftentimes I know, talk about how churches die because the pastor refuses to grow. Mm-hmm or to shift during the dynamics of the culture or the context, because everything is changing around us. How do you make those shifts and still remain relevant, but also true to the gospel? So a couple things and not necessarily in order. Uh, one is to surround yourself with people who challenge you to grow and challenge each other to grow. And I have a network of friends mm -hmm. who will not, ever let me become stale water. Mm. So they're always pouring fresh water into me and right. they're always requiring fresh water from me. And that's that whole iron sharpens iron thing that the Bible talks about. So that's one. Two is a love for reading. I think at some point people get stale because they trust their ideas and their ruminations more than they expose themselves to the mm. ideas and ruminations of others. And there are thinkers that are hitting the scene that I think um, a challenge in common thought. Right. And even if you don't convert to their thinking, I think the challenge helps you to sharpen your own. So I like reading people who are um, entering the stage, whose trajectory is rising, who just completed PhDs. Renita Weems, who I respect highly, said average people read an author scholars study who the author reads mm. 
So it's like tracing back to first source and stuff like that. So, um, so I think that helps. And then I think, as I said earlier, because I treat ministry as an athlete does every year. And I, and, and I say this sincerely every year I choose in different facets of my life, what I'm going to work on to sharpen. Mm. So let's take preaching. For example, there have been years where I've said, I want to work on introductions. Right. I want to work on transitions. I want to work on vocality. I want to work on um, economy of words. I want to work on impact for practical decisions. I want to work on, you know, what helps people to convert. Mm -hmm. Every year there's a different quote unquote skill level of homelegs that I decide I'm going to work on. Right now I'm trying to work on sentence structure that is concise, Mm. not wasting words. Right. Right. Um, And then I do that with er other areas of my life. So whatever other disciplines uh, I'm trying to work on in my counseling, listening more than looking for the angle that I can insert the catharsis into Mm -hmm. the mistake that I have made early in my career was I would listen until I got that aha moment. And then when that person said, what gave me the aha moment, then it was my turn. Mm -hmm. Well, now just getting to the aha moment might not be what the person needs as much as they need a safe place to dump. Right. So learning and counseling how to listen thoroughly until a person is finished what they're saying and then helping them to know that I value what they have said. And I want to insert the word of God into that. So that's just an example of right. every year I try to choose something to perfect right. some dimension of ministry and then some dimension of my internal space. Mm-hmm. People have said to me in recent months, it looks like I'm just in this chill mode. Well, one of the reasons that it appears that way is because I am focusing on internal space in this season and how to, in the midst of flux and anxiety, how to still have peace. Right. And what does that mean for me and how to age gracefully and what happens when, you know, some of the strength of your youth is giving way to some of the fragility of middle age, Mm. because that, that can mess with you mentally. So I'm just managing and navigating all that space. And part of it is just owning the authenticity of that and wrestling with God in those spaces. Mm. And I think as you're doing that, it helps to explain what Paul says when, you know, he, he's wrestling with his age, but says, but I'm being renewed day by day, you know, that there's this internal re-engagement that helps him to feel renewed while the body is decaying. Last question and we'll be done. Uh, what, what is your hope or dream for the future of the church? Okay. So I'm, I I will make my, I have a dream (laughs) speech with this. My hope is that we are at a place where we recognize that there is neither black nor white, male mm-hmm. nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but that out of one blood have God created all men and women to dwell upon the face of the earth. Right. That from my perspective as an African-American pastor, that my social justice motif and my prophetic lens is not just for the liberation of my people, but for the oneness of creation. Mm. Now, some people criticize me for that because they think our prophetic edge needs to remain ethnically centered. And I don't deny the fact that African-Americans have to fight for justice and that there is such inequality, economic inequality, racial inequality, housing inequality, Mm -hmm. educational inequality. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but that does not negate for me that while I got to stand on the front line and fight for justice that the hope, no, that the lens of the kingdom is is that at the end of that, it is not just the liberation of African-Americans. It is the oneness of creation. Mm. I think Jesus was intentional when he said in his priestly prayer that they may be one as we are one. And here's my criticism. My criticism of both sides of our current Christian debate, evangelical versus everything else. Mm -hmm. My criticism of that is that if we if we are proposed.
components of our varied sides, we do great jobs at criticism. Right. We do a poor job at painting a picture of hope. That we're good at calling out sin, naming demons, but we forget that part of the prophet's job was to paint the picture of the alternative community. Mm. And I don't think we do a good job of painting that picture. So my hope for the church is that we, while we are critiquing and speaking truth to power, that while we're doing that, that we are also painting a picture of an alternative community. And I just believe that the God we preach about, he does not have in his creative imagination an alternative community that is racially divided, ethnically divided, economically divided, educationally divided, that the kingdom means we're all one. Right. That's what's up, man. Thank you so much. Dr. William Curtis, Dr. Marcus Allen, signing off. Peace. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.